A word of warning. What follows includes harrowing testimony and graphic descriptions of human rights violations. The defining moment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission varies from person to person. For some, it will always be the moment the Truth Commission opened the floodgates of human suffering in East London in 1996. Or those rare moments of reconciliation, intimacy and even destruction between victim and perpetrator. For others, it is the pall of brutality and senselessness that has been exhumed with plastic-sealed skeletons and shattered bones from unmarked graves. Then there is the so-called triumph of the truth, the day that the architect of the Truth Commission, the ANC, failed in court to stop the release of the TRC's findings. Angie Capellianis asked the men and women tasked with exposing the truth and promoting reconciliation what defined the Truth Commission for them. We went down to King Williamstown a few days before the first hearing in East London to perform the briefing or emotional preparation of the witnesses who were coming to the hearing. Wendy Orr. It was a new concept, a new idea. It was the first hearing. I'd certainly never done anything like it before and really didn't know how it was going to go. And we met with so many things. Um, I remember that we, we broke into small groups and, and even though I very often didn't understand what the people in my group were saying because they, they, they didn't speak English, there was this sense of, of overwhelming pain and suffering and we all ended up crying together. And the sense I had at, at the end of the day was that we were in for a very long and difficult journey but that I was 100% committed to it. Sure. I suppose it had to be the first public hearing in East London. Alex Burain. Up till then, we were talking in theory, we were organizing tables and chairs and appointing staff and all the usual thing that a commission has to do from scratch. But that first mind-blowing, hard-stopping, soul-searching day in East London where we didn't quite know how it was going to go. The place was packed. We were sitting nervously on the stage. There were bomb threats. There were all sorts. I, I'm very sorry to interrupt, but it does indicate the kind of things we have to deal with in our country. There is a bomb threat. Desmond Tutu. Uh, we apologize, uh, Mrs. Uh, Mohapi, that we have to do this at this stage, but it makes, it makes all of us aware that uh, there are some people who will stop at nothing to try and prevent this commission from carrying out its work. We could have um, stuffed it up very badly because we were so new to this and inexperienced and uh, nervous. But it was a tremendous day because people began to speak and the moment the first victim uttered those first words, I knew. I just knew that whatever else we may do badly, the commission was going to be worthwhile. And whenever I think... 
After the death of my daughter, I, I, I was full of hate. I was hating anybody who is a police. Those were the people who were enforcing apartheid laws on us. They wanted us not to have rights. At last, voices that had been stilled were, were heard, and this gave me an enormous sense, a moment of destiny almost, that um, this was going to start a process in this country which would have repercussions for years to come. The defining moment was that first day we really did not realize how important and how significant that day was. Faisal Rundera. And then listening to the stories, to mothers, wives, husbands, talking about the loss that they suffered, made it so real for all of us involved. The room was full of police men. I was scared. Elizabeth Hashe. This white man with very big face, with, with moustache. He was called Strado. From the murder and robbery squad. He said to me, Mrs. Hashe, do you know that your husband was found at Fear Plus? Bent. We could only identify him with his lower parts from the waist downwards. I said, there is nothing of that kind. He said to me, what do you expect me to say? I said to him, he argued with me. He said, I'm telling you the truth. They were bent. He's not here. It is really the personal moments, the people who have testified before us. And I can't think of one particular one. It's just so many of those hearings, those brave but wounded people speaking to us. Mary Burton. And for me particularly, the firm impression that remains is the hearings that we had in the rural areas, where people came forward with such high hope of what the Commission could do to transform their lives. You know, my problem is I was a shepherd. I'm staying with Thomas Dikotsi, that is my son. Juwang Dikotsi. He is now the father in the house because he is working, he's the breadwinner. And he's also taking care of the one I've just said that he is mentally disturbed. My wife cannot walk. I am not in a position to buy her a wheelchair. And we have to go to doctors all around the country and we are lacking funds for the transport. Transformation has to come. Their lives, or at least their secure knowledge that their children's lives will be different, is very important if we're talking about reconciliation. I think the dawning of the tremendous pain and loss that this country has experienced through our youth. Glenda Voltskut. Any society can be judged by the way in which we treat our most vulnerable and our children were not well treated in the past. I'm severely stressed, depressed, angry, frustrated. Rifat Hattas. I have no confidence in myself. I'm sometimes suicidal. I'm messed up. 
He goes up what I went through during my high school years. That saddened me the most. And, and if there's anything that I want to, to actually work on is really to say, how can we put in place structures that will revere children, that will honor children, and see them as a national asset, our country's national asset. There were moments of truth, which for me were really exciting. You know, like some of the testimonies about the involvement of the police. Mainly from the amnesty process, where they began to tell the truth, making full disclosure. I mean, they really made me feel that this process was worth it. Captain Van Seilet from Neahashe, with a pin 2-2, Gewehr geskiet. Gideon Niewout. Heidi, Gewehr on my oorhande, waar ek op my beerd, van meneer Gordelosi geskiet het. Captain Saki van Seil shot Mr. Sipu Ashi with a modified .22 rifle. For meneer Galela. I, in turn, shot Mr. Katrauli Gordolosi. Mr. Gert Lotz shot Mr. Champion Galela. All three bodies were put on the pyre and doused with diesel. I lit the fire, Your Honor. The corpses were burned to ashes after about six to eight hours, Your Honor. The most enduring moment, the one that will stay with me, the image that, that will stay with me for the rest of my life, is the first exhumation which was done in KwaZulu-Natal. Richard Lister. It was involved a young woman who had been a senior ANC MK member in Swaziland. She was abducted by a man called Andy Taylor notorious security branch policeman. She was taken to a farm which was rented by the security branch in a remote area of the Natal Midlands. Um, she was kept naked in a, in a small concrete room. We know this because the people who killed her have applied for amnesty. The purpose of keeping her there and torturing her, because they said that they did torture her, was to persuade her to become an informer. And then when they had no further use for her, they made her kneel down and shot her in the back of the head. They'd dug a, a fairly deep grave, but a, a short grave, and they had to bend her knees up to put her in, and she was on her back. And when we uncovered her body, she um, had a blue plastic bag on her on her waist, and we asked the people what it was. And they said that she had uh, put this plastic bag over her to try and maintain some sense of feminine dignity while she was being interrogated and tortured. For me, it just, it said so many things about the people who killed her, and it said so many things about people like her, people who died. And they said things like she was very brave. One can be quite intellectual about this process and one can debate in great uh, philosophical detail concepts like reconciliation and you can get all sorts of interesting points of view. Denzel Potgieter. But that doesn't really capture the experience. When you experience it, when you witness it, then it really strikes you that, you know, what we're doing is not really pie in the sky. It's very, very doable. But I would like to hear from each one of you as you look me in the face, 
that you are sorry for what you've done. Davi Ackerman. That you regret it and that you want to be personally reconciled. We are sorry for what we have done. Although people died during that struggle, we didn't do that out of our own will. It's the situation that we are living under. We are asking from you, please do forgive us. I want you to know that I forgive you unconditionally. The Winnie Mandela hearing had really moments of greatness. Yasmin Suka. I think that is when you saw the metal of some South African figures. And one example for me was when Paul makes his impassioned plea to Mrs. Mandela. I thought that you saw what this man was made of. I have been profoundly profoundly affected by some of the things that you have said about me that have hurt me and cut me to the quick. Paul Verain. I have had to struggle to come to some place of learning to forgive even if you do not want forgiveness or even think that I deserve to offer that to you. I struggle to, to find a way in which we can be reconciled for the sake of this nation and for the people that I believe God loves so deeply. And so I, I sit before you and want to say that to you. Another, of course, was at the end of the hearing when the Archbishop in fact appealed to Mrs. Mandela to acknowledge the things that got horribly wrong. For me, there was what you call an electric silence in the room as he made this impassioned plea. There are people out there who want to embrace you. I, I still embrace you because I love you. And I love you very deeply. There are many out there who would have wanted to do so if you were able to bring yourself to say something went wrong and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my part in what went wrong. I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, please, you are a great person and you don't know how your greatness would be enhanced if you were to say sorry. Things went wrong. Forgive me. I beg you. I am saying it is true. Things went horribly wrong. For that, I am deeply sorry. I think that his gesture was misinterpreted by a number of people who saw it as him trying to give a, a way out. But for me, that's the reality of what this is about, about saying 
things have gone wrong and we take responsibility for it. I think that was a very poignant and emotional moment. And I knew it was one of the sort of great cameos, I would call it, of the commission. <sighs> I would say the Bishop hearing. After the man who had been in charge of the Siskayan Defence Force had spoken and really incensed everybody, like what we say, I was upset. Were I to have the power to rewrite history, this would certainly be a chapter of our history and of my own military career, which I would expunge from the record. Marius Ulshech. I am unable to say who gave the orders to fire on the ground or in which terms those orders were communicated. To have him followed almost immediately by four of his officers, three black and one white. The white is the spokesperson and he says to this hall, jam-packed with people and the tension, I mean, you could cut it with a knife after the testimony of this man. This guy says, yes, we gave the orders. And you thought, I mean, that place was going to explode. And then he turns to the audience and he says, We are sorry. I say the burden of the Pichu massacre will be on our shoulders for the rest of our lives. We cannot wish it away. It happened. Horst Schubesberger. But please, I ask specific the victims not to forget, I cannot ask this, but to forgive us, to get the soldiers back into the community, to accept them fully, to try to understand also under the pressure they were then. This is all I can do. I, <coughs> I'm sorry. That was a fantastic moment. And, and I, I said at the end of it, Please, let's keep quiet because we are in the presence of something holy. Then the other, I would say, with the revelation of this chemical and biological warfare, now one knows they were not going to stop at anything. There were also plans to contaminate medication used by President Nelson Mandela at Polismoor with the untraceable heavy metal poison thallium. Skalk van Rensburg. In a conversation with André Immerman, shortly after Nelson Mandela's release, he was very confident that Nelson Mandela's brain function would be impaired progressively for some time. We've heard a lot of devastating evidence from all sides. But for me, that was the worst because it was so calculated, so methodical, so clean, <laughs> clinical, and therefore utterly diabolical. I, one realized the awfulness of apartheid. That made me realize that um, we have the capacity for remarkable evil. But you see, the other one says we have the capacity for remarkable good. 